What's up, everybody? It is Monday, February 13th, 2017, and this is the Monday Morning Analyst here on MMAfighting.com. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. My name is Luke Thomas. I am the host of this podcast. You might know me from a lot of other things. Um, three parts to the podcast. We talk about the big overview from the weekend. We look at some things in particular, and then I take a look very quickly at what's coming up in the week ahead. So, what happened last weekend? Um... Not much that was great. A, not a lot of activity, and B, what activity there was left a lot to be desired. But in the end, I think you're going to see that it was helpful that it happened, and I'll explain what I mean in just a few minutes. Um, UFC 208, I was there. That was really the only event of significance, so let's just get right into it off the top of the break. UFC 208 took place at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York, one of the great five boroughs of New York City. Uh, this was uh, an attendance of 15,628 for a total gate of 2.275 million. Um, that was the sporting record for that venue, which is a good number. But nevertheless, I think for a UFC show, certainly 2.3 million is nothing to sneeze at. But um, And of course, a far cry from the, I think, what, 18 million they got from UFC 205. I think that is obviously a outlier in terms of the kind of gates they'll do in New York City. But nevertheless... I think somewhat underwhelming. I mean, the attendance was good, and they, they called it a sellout, but there was a ton of tickets left on the secondary market, so I'm not exactly sure how they define sellout. Um, I guess if they sell them all to these vendors who snatch them up and then resell them to you, that can that's considered to be a sellout. I'm not I'm not exactly sure, but in any event, um, not a bad gate, a good gate. It's it's a good number, but it's not a great number, um, even though there are some measures to it that make it look better than it is. Now. Before we get into these fights, let's just make a comment about this card. This was the first pay-per-view of the year. They were supposed to have one last month, and they didn't. Uh, it was going to be in Southern California. They just couldn't get all the pieces uh, together, and so they canceled it or you know rescheduled it, whatever you want to call it. Oh, and by the way, here's my credential for uh, the event. There it is. All right. There we are. This event was not good. Uh, in fact, it was quite bad. There was only one finish on the card, which in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but the decisions themselves with a, a couple of outliers here or there uh, were essentially the result of ho-hum affairs. Um, some of the matchmaking, I think, was questionable. On paper, ahead of time, I thought, like, you know what, some of these fights don't look so bad, but they just didn't play out in the way that I think some of us might have expected, or perhaps you did expect this to happen and it played out exactly as you want, or rather as you predicted. In addition, you could say up front the card lacked star power, and I think as a consequence it sort of suffered um, uh, in terms of the feel of the event generally. Like if it's not going to have big, big stars like UFC 206 did, and it had some star power, and 206 probably had more star power than this one, Nevertheless, the fights were incredible, right? They ultimately delivered. I think we would have forgiven the lack of star power here had the fights been more than what they were, and they just weren't. The one fight where there was a finish in Jacare versus Boach, which was essentially sort of Scott Coker-style matchmaking, um, that was a great finish, but it wasn't in of itself enough to lift even the rest of that main card. And there was another good fight on that main card, which we'll get to in just a second. But overall, I think I speak for a lot of you when I say it was very underwhelming. And... Look, to some extent, matchmaking is part engineering and it's part gambling. 
There's only so much you can do to build the right kind of card with the available fights at the available time with the available guys on the roster. Um, and fights that make sense for the division, fight that makes sense for fights I should say that make sense for the broader fan base. There's only so much you can do to engineer your luck. The rest of it is frankly up to um, serendipity. And they did not, serendipity, uh, the god of such, did not smile upon the UFC this time. I think this was a very, very lackluster card, to put it mildly. Now, that being said, let's go through some of these fights. I am not going to spend a ton of time on some of the prelim card fights. Frankly, there is just no point to it. Um, Let's talk about this main and co-main event. Okay. I want to make a point here. First of all, let me just read the result. Jermaine Durand defeats Holly Holm 48-47, 48-47, and then 48-47. In other words, three rounds to two on all the judges' scorecards. That is not how I saw it in real time. In real time, I saw it three rounds to two for Holly. Um... Let's also talk just a second about this co-main event. Anderson Silva defeating Derek Brunson, also via unanimous decision, 229-28, and then 130-27. Okay, we're going to break down these fights individually in just a second. But I want to make a larger claim about what's happening here. Is there something to be said about the inability of the New York State Athletic Commission to properly handle an event of this magnitude? I think you actually can make a fairly credible argument We'll talk about the foul that occurred, or the two fouls that occurred, arguably, in the main event in just a moment. But you can add that to sort of the list, in addition to the fact they let Douglas Crosby, who has a relationship with Nick Lentz, a familial one, no, excuse me, not a familial one, a, I mean, they're friends. Um, they let him, nevertheless, judge one of his bouts. Now, he did score at 30-27 for Makachev, but some of those rounds could have been a 10-8, right? So, um, certainly, you could argue that even if he judged it fairly in some capacity, that kind of conflict of interest should be rooted out before it even begins. They failed there. There's a question about whether or not the referees in the main event, uh, referee, excuse me, in the main event was um, good enough to do that level of work. He had made another error in the Poirier versus uh, Miller fight. So there's one argument to be made about these fights sort of suffering from, I won't say necessarily terrible officiating, but... Uh, what do you want to call it? Underdeveloped expertise here. These are not amateurs doing this, but these are not the industry's best. And I think that the UFC can't ignore New York. It's an important market. They've made promises there. They have to go back. And they're going back, of course, for UFC 210. I think my concern, though, is if I was the UFC, to the extent possible, and there are financial concerns in play here given some of the insurance requirements... But to the extent they can bring fight nights and give these judges and referees and various other members of the officiating crew time to work at a more elite and senior level, I think ultimately that will benefit mixed martial arts generally and then these fighters specifically. But that's really not what I want to talk about right now. What I would like to talk about is scoring. Now, you might think I want to take this opportunity to blast terrible judges. You might think I want to take this opportunity to say, oh, how incompetent the rest of the world is, but people who have our own similar sensibilities. Uh, And that is not what I want to do. The bigger issue for me is not whether or not we have a sufficiently senior group in New York. We know we don't, but that is a solvable problem, at least over time. There might be some 
collateral damage, unfortunately, as a consequence, but we can work on that pretty clearly. We know what we can do there, and at a minimum, they can farm in outside help to the extent that they need it. The bigger issue for me is the scoring criteria. Here's what I think the major takeaway after rewatching the main and co-main event. The main event I rewatched probably three or four times. The co-main event I went back and watched, honestly, probably 20 times. And I did it not merely from the way it was originally broadcast to the audience on pay-per-view. I actually went back and purchased through Fight Pass so I could watch at different camera angles. And we're going to go through some of those slides in the second um, segment. But the basic idea is this. We know that it's very, very possible uh, through a close contest in either a three or a five round bout. You or I may differ on some of the rounds, but we'll basically come to the same conclusion about who won. But the reality of the scoring criteria that we currently employ is that you can have a not merely radically different scorecard than I do. You can have it so radically different that we come to the conclusion that we have two different winners. You pick X, I pick Y. And not merely that, you can actually cobble together a very strong argument for your fighter, even in scenarios where you can have 30-27 go opposite directions. That is not an impossibility. Frankly, it is not merely an inevitability. It has already happened a number of times. Now, that, I admit, is exceedingly rare. But it happens, and it's also worth noting that you get a lot of commonly, maybe 29-28 on one side for X, 30-27 for Y. That can happen as well. And the reason why is because I fundamentally believe that the scoring criteria, it's not bankrupt, but the problem is you are asking human beings, primates essentially, in real time with limited use or almost no use of technology to score something with extraordinarily wide latitude. It is frankly not scandalous that we come to vastly different conclusions as observers of fights about who won. It is frankly surprising we don't do it more often. Think about a couple of things. Number one, what is a common criticism of journalism generally? Not merely MMA media, but media generally. Oh, this reporter, this news source is biased. And I've gone through this before. I, I, th I find that criticism actually to be quite bankrupt. Everyone is biased. Right? You are born tall, you are born short, you are born with some kind of terrible genetic condition, you are born as a super athlete, you are born rich, you are born poor, you are born Canadian, American, uh, Sudanese, you are born Muslim, you are born Christian, you are born atheist, um, you grow up with terrible life experiences, you grow up in an orphanage, you grow up as a super wealthy, spoiled rich kid. You, you get the idea. To the extent we have these vastly different life experiences, that bears on our judgment generally. I don't think people appreciate that enough. Your life and the contours of it and the tragedy of it and the success of it and everything else in between, that defines how you view the world. You cannot escape that, at least not for the most part. So the best you can do is be honest about that, not simply rely on that to inform your judgment, but not try to pretend it doesn't exist either. As a journalist, you have a responsibility to talk about um, the world as you see it, but to cobble facts as you see them, to be honest about those facts, how you got them, what they are, and then put together a narrative that you believe best explains the reality in which we live. And then the readers are supposed to make a judgment about that, right? There is some sort of trustworthiness about the process, and I think that comes to the rigorousness of your work. The point being is, judges are very much the same way, right? 
They have their own backgrounds, their own biases, their own literal viewing position in the world. And this dramatically impacts what people see from, this is not really the case merely from judges, from observers to fans. Your position, not merely physically in the arena or on the TV at home, but maybe you have certain sympathies in one direction. Maybe you really believe in the power of takedowns. Maybe you don't. Maybe you see top control differently. Maybe you thought a shot landed and it didn't, right? So it's not really your perception of the world from a um, spatial sense, but also some of the inherent biases you might have, whether you're cognizant about them or not, about certain things you value in a fight. All of these things, when you bring them to bear, affect your judgment. In addition, I think there's a second component that we also have to take a look at. You know, there's a very common criticism that you hear European MMA fans, whenever I talk to them about American sports that they make, particularly, let's say, NFL football, right? NFL football is big uh, in the United States, maybe North America. It's growing in in Canada and, and, and Mexico. But it's an American thing for all intents and purposes. And one of the criticisms you hear, and frankly, you hear this in, in America too, is that, God, the game just takes so long. The game takes so long. And it certainly does. And the reason why it takes so long is because a, a, a lot of things. It's essentially American rugby, right? But it's rugby is an incredibly, do not misunderstand me, rugby is an incredibly awesome and tactical sport. But I don't know if there is a more strategic sport out there than American football. And if you don't know anything about American football, it might not sound that way to you. It might just sound like just two waves of large men crashing into each other, let me assure you it is not. I have never seen something so strategic. If you don't believe me, please look up the analyst Matt Bowen. Matt Bowen works for ESPN, previously of Bleacher Report, and this is a guy whose sole job is to explain to you the X's and O's of how American football works. American football is insanely, insanely complicated. Everyone has to be in a certain position at a certain time, Everything has to work. All the pieces of the puzzle have to work in conjunction for any kind of real play and progress to happen down the field. You have to be right on your route as a receiver at the right time, at the right space for anything to work. Sure, there are moments where things fall apart. Guys make things happen. There are check down throws. You get the idea. But the point being is it is insanely, insanely strategic which is why you'll notice there are over 30 NFL teams and there's maybe 15 good quarterbacks in the world because that position is outrageously difficult to play. They can't find, literally, they can't find 20 guys to do that well. Just consider what that means. That's how hard that position is to play. And so here's what I mean. What does this relate to this conversation? One of the things that makes football what it is, is not merely how strategic it is. But the point being is, they want to make sure they get everything precise. They call it a game of inches, and it is, right? The difference between getting a couple of inches and a yards to get a new set of downs is dramatic. But it's not merely that the play is strategic, it's that they honor the high level of strategy in that game with a with an extraordinary amount and in a very sophisticated way, relatively speaking, of 
making sure they've officiated it properly. And you might say, Luke, they make m- mistakes all the time. Right. There, certainly, there is no perfect system. But think about a controversial call about whether or not a catch was made, Julian Edelman's catch in the Super Bowl. Look at how many different camera angles they used to determine that. Look at the specificity of the catch criteria. And even that, I understand, this whole season was about what counts as a catch, what doesn't. I am not presenting to you that they've had, they've got it all figured out. Far from it. But relative to what we have, that is a vastly superior way in which to do this. Remarkably so. They have much more specificity, not merely technologically, but based on the rule set itself. Why? Because if everything has to be perfectly arranged and every kind of position and movement matters from calling fouls to gaining yardage to whatever the case may be, you have to make sure there is a level of specificity that honors those achievements or those failures. That's why it's so sophisticated and why, frankly, the game in part takes so long. There's lots of stops and starts, not really with the plays itself, but with the officiating. We don't have any of that. Putting monitors next to a judge... That is incremental progress. But what it also is, is basically not much. It's basically not much. A, we don't even really know how much they're using them. B, it's not really clear that it's substantively improved judging in any real capacity. And C, when you go back and watch in real time, you see things very, very differently than you did the first time. When you change angles with the camera, you see things very, very differently than the first time. This is why in tennis... You have uh, not goal line technology, but certainly uh, what, what do they call it? The whatever the, the technology to, to see if the ball hit is in or out. Uh, they have goal line technology in both hockey and um, in uh, soccer. And the one in hockey is, I mean, they've got a whole team of guys in Toronto who monitor that kind of thing, right? They have a much more enhanced way of doing that. And you might say, well, Luke, MMA doesn't lend itself to that kind of technological oversight. And I would agree, we can't stop and start fights or stop and start rounds in the same way that you can with football. Football also, because of its stop and start nature, American football lends itself to more, um, it makes it easier to be assisted by technology. But here is what I am saying to you. I am basically done arguing about who won a fight. Because unless it is so egregious... Or let's say, like, you might think, Jesus, not only is this a 10-8, this is a 10-7 for a guy. X-10, Y-7. I mean, he almost got stopped a number of times. He's bleeding all over his face. He can't even get up for a stool. And then they give that guy a 10-9. That is so far out of the bounds of rational discussion that that would be problematic. But just about everything else in between is fair game. I went back and I watched that co-main event from Sylvan Brunson. I can't tell you how many times. Probably 20, like I said before. Um... You can find any reason to score that either way. The scoring criteria allows human beings to, with extraordinarily wide latitude, making snap judgments with almost no technological aid, with limited seating position, to make an incredibly dramatic call. It's not even like soccer. Where, sure, those guys make bad calls all the time and players flop, but let's take Real Madrid for a a second, right? If they're somehow out of the running for a La Liga race, 
that they lose games on Saturday, they still have a chance to win a Champions League on Tuesday. And also, their game checks are going to be basically the same no matter what. It doesn't have, I'm not saying those referee decisions don't have hugely significant consequences. They do, but they don't necessarily for financially. And whatever happens in one campaign for these big teams anyway, doesn't necessarily carry over in the week to the next campaign. And they get the chance to get right back on the horse and get back on the winning track pretty quickly. There, there's an opportunity for getting things fixed. The current scoring criteria is just so... It lends itself, basically, in unique ways in sports that I've really never seen anything else do, including even boxing, where you can have this accumulative effect, which I think washes out some of the bias. That's just a hunch. I don't know that to be sure. But the point being is... If you have 10-9 for one guy and I have 10-9 for another guy, totally reasonable. And we can go down that line all the way. Did you have the score 29-28 Brunson? Cool. So did I. Did you have a 30-27 Brunson? I can see that scorecard, no problem. Did you have a 29-28 Silva? I didn't see it that way, but I can see how you did. Did you have a 30-27 Silva? That's a little harder for me to swallow. It's very hard for me to swallow, but I can honestly see how that could happen depending on a number of different factors. Same with the main event. Did you have it 48-47 Holly like I did? Sure, maybe you did. Did you have a 48-47 Duran to me? Okay, I get it. Did you have it 49-46 Duran to me? Yep, I get it. Did you even have it 50-45 Duran to me? I can also see that. Look at where we are. Look at what's happened. It is so hard to make a definitive case for a definitive score for any kind of a round that it makes outrage about scoring based on your preferences Almost a, a moot point. Am I suggesting that we throw the baby out with the bathwater? That we say, yep, don't ever, don't ever argue your position. That is not what I am saying. Argue the case that you believe most closely matches the reality. But I guess what I'm also saying is, in, in retrospect, having thought about this and having watched these fights again, we have a ton of work to do. I appreciate that the Association of Boxing Commissions has iterated this criteria somewhat for fingers out, for hand on the ground, what all, the, all those different kinds of things. They have articulated effective strike and effective grappling is the same. And if that's even between two competitors, then you go down the list. You know, octagon control and aggression and all those things. I appreciate that they're getting better. We need to keep iterating. And the UFC is in a very unique position. If I'm watching a fight from the normal camera angle by which they show something, and then I watch the overhead cam and it looks very different, there's a problem there. There's a problem there. They are uniquely situated financially and technologically to help iterate scoring criteria. We need to experiment. If they're going overseas and they're going to be in a place where there's no athletic commission, I am not saying they have to abandon the way in which they've been doing things for the sake of consistency. But somewhere else in that building, we need to start experimenting with different ways to do judging, with different criteria, with different ways of considering it. Because what we have now is woefully, woefully inadequate for any kind of conflict resolution. If you thought Silva won, I can see that. At first, I couldn't. I saw it for Brunson. I frankly still see it for Brunson. I understand his complaints, especially with folks who thought, who thought he lost the first round. But the fact of the matter is, depending on your preferences, depending on your worldview generally and your worldview spatially in that moment, in that arena, or on watching television, it is, it is okay to find a scorecard for Anderson Silva. If you're a fan, you need to keep scoring and keep thinking of new ways 
to make scoring criteria better. This is not a time to sit on the sidelines. And I certainly don't come to you right now and present to you a ton of answers. But what I am asking for is, if you have some ideas, please keep trying. Maybe the half-point system wasn't one that was going to work. Maybe the one championship system is the one that will work, ultimately. I don't know the answer to that. And I recognize that because we went to all these athletic commissions and we enshrined them to have the power that making any kind of change is a literal bureaucratic mess. I get it. That is not a case to not step on the gas pedal here. People have been badly affected by judging that could have gone one way or the other. It has massive consequences for wins and for losses for these guys who have a very limited number of fights in them. We owe it to them. We owe it to the sport to keep pushing the boundaries of what's possible. And frankly, I do call on the UFC to some capacity. They have their hands full, and I get it. And this not, maybe is not a priority for them, and I also get that. But they, of all actors in this space, have the ability to look at this situation, look at different ways, and think about different possibilities of scoring fights to try, to, to, to innovate, to iterate, to adapt, whatever the case may be. We need to do better because if we have a system where you and I can draw vastly different conclusions and both have a rational basis by referencing the very scoring criteria from which we are trying to make this decision, we have a serious problem on our hands. We have a super serious problem. We keep wondering why we have these terrible judging consequences because we, we license these judges to make bad decisions. We give them absolute license. Are some judges better than others? Yes, I don't think to say we have no means of separating who might be better than the other ones. But you go and look at the uh, one of the judges, I forget which one it was, from the Silva fight who had it 29-28. No, the one who had it 30-27 for Silva. Uh, I went back and looked at some of his other judging um, uh, scorecards. They were fine. They were totally fine. This is not a guy who is some sort of a red flag case of being absolutely terrible, at least not manifestly so. So, I know this has gone on for a while, but this to me is the big takeaway from the weekend. We have a scoring criteria where it leads to fun debates, and maybe that's all you care about is having a fun debate, and that's fine too, I get that. I'm just saying, um, we have a lot of work to do with our scoring criteria, and I think arguing super seriously that one guy won and one guy didn't after careful review is just not a tenable position. There are lots of different scorecards you could come to, and based on the scoring criteria, all of them are reasonable. That said, Jermaine Dermandermi defeats Holly Holm 48-47 across the board. What can we say about this fight? I thought easily, without much debate, but I suppose there's some, she won the first two rounds. She was timing Holly off her cross. The one-two was coming. She was stepping back in the pocket, sliding out at an angle sometimes, and crushing her. And everyone said she did that through the course of the fight. That's not true. Holly was able to adapt, I think from the third round on, to some extent, where she would throw the one-two and she would lean off to the side and throw a kick to the body or throw a shot off the side she was leaning to. She was able to do something a little bit more dramatic throughout the course of that fight after the third round on. Um... I also thought that her takedowns, I mean, you could tell, man, they just lacked a certain amount of finesse. She'd be in the right position, but she just couldn't She couldn't commit her body fully to the takedown. She would be positionally a little bit off. There was one time she dove in for a takedown, and, and 
uh, Duran to me had double underhooks, and I was like, oof, you got to let that takedown go. So you can just tell she's made a lot of progress. She can find the positions. Like, she was there getting behind. Like, she would get an, uh, an underhook on one side, and she would slip under the arm and get behind Duran to me, and she'd have a gable grip. I mean, if that was Habib Nurmagomedov, who I understand is obviously a vastly superior wrestler, I'm just saying you put someone who knows what they're doing in that position, that other person is going to go for a ride. She could have tripped out the feet. She could have done a lot of stuff that would have brought Duran to me to the ground. But she just, you can tell that she's made progress, and she understands that there are certain places she needs to be. But wrestling is not automatic. Not everyone who works on it gets good, and even those who get good at it don't necessarily get very good at it. It's hard. It's really, really hard. So I commend her progress. I commend her. And she did a really good job. If you notice, she arches her hips in all the time. So she was really closing off the space to Durandamy. To the extent there was some space, I thought Durandamy landed some nice knees in the clinch. We have to count those as well. Um, so she wasn't overwhelmed. I also thought Durandamy had improved takedown defense. There were times where um, in those kinds of positions in previous fights, she'd get her ankles scooped and get taken to the ground. That was not the case here. So she has, I think, done better. But... I don't know how you can watch that Durandamy fight and say to yourself, oh, she's got a great chance against Cyborg. I suppose because she is an accurate credentialed striker, but if Cyborg wants to take that fight to the ground, she has, I suspect, no problems doing so. And once she gets there, she will bludgeon Durandamy. So um, Cyborg still appears to be your eminent queen, but Durandamy, you know, I thought put in a decent enough job to, to rightfully win that fight. Uh, I didn't score it that way, as we've just mentioned, but I can see why if you did. I don't think 48-47 for her is in any way egregious. I really don't. What does this mean for Holly Holmes' career? I guess we'll talk about that on the live chat on Wednesday. Same for Duran to me. Silva versus Brunson. We went over the result already. 229-28s and a 30-27. Um, this is my argument. I... I don't understand the 30-27 scorecard for Silva. I just don't see how you can give him the first round. But one did. We're going to go through the first round in the next um, segment. But I think it deserves to be said. One thing people kept bringing up was like Brunson didn't do enough. You're right. He didn't do enough. Uh, or he didn't do as much as he could have, I should say. I thought he did enough to win. I thought he needed enough uh, to win certainly the first round. I thought you could make a case for all three rounds. Um it's weird, though. A lot of Silva fans were like, well, he won the first two and lost the third. And then some Silva fans, a lesser group, seemed to be like, well, he won the second and the third. I can give him the second. I don't, but I can. I can see why he would get the second round. But that third round, to me, is is like a 10-10. I mean, I thought Silva did a little bit better striking, but it's not merely that the takedown counts. It's To me, it's not quite the same as collegiate riding time, but to the extent someone spends an inordinate amount of time on the bottom... Um, I count that against them. Uh, I think the unified rules might count that as 50-50. Uh, I need to verify that. It's, to me, it is absolutely not a 50-50 position. I don't think that is a rational scoring criteria. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it really depends on the perspective here and what the unified rules actually say about that position. But long story short, 29-28 I can live with at this point. I, on Fight Night, I was like, robbery. Okay, I'll walk it back. It's not a robbery. But 3027 uh, is a little hard to swallow. That he won, ultimately, I suppose, is not, even if I disagree. Brunson's takedowns were stuffed. Silva did a really good job, not merely of uh, blocking, but down blocking and getting out of the way of the takedown itself, sort of moving in a circle away from the, the power side of what Brunson was doing. So I really appreciated that. Really has done a much better job. You can see he can, because he can play with his hand space, he can dig an underhook really well. Um, strong takedown defense against the fence. Brunson was able to get him down that third by changing directions on him, which, which I thought was great. 
but he didn't do a whole lot on top. Silva was able to land, sneak an elbow through, although Brunson got a couple through. But that first round, there were a couple of shots that people were like, oh, that definitely scored. Uh, it definitely didn't. It definitely didn't. Oh, you'll see in the second segment. So a weird fight and a fight that underscores that with the current scoring criteria, being outraged about one thing or the other in this particular case, despite my initial one, outrage, just doesn't merit it. It just doesn't merit it. Uh, Jacare Souza defeating Tim Boach via Kimura, 341 of the first round. This was great. You know, I mean, Jacare has the best knee on belly rides, I think, of anyone in MMA. He gets so many guys to make mistakes from there to push to try and get up, which he can get different submissions from. Uh, it allows him to move to mount if he wants. He can windshield wiper over into it. Boach did a pretty good job initially getting a left butterfly hook stopping the mount, but Jacare just tripoded up and then sat through. And then as Boach tried to roll, Jacare just controlled the forearm and then stepped over the head with the Kimura. We've talked about that. A Kimura, on a far side Kimura is one thing. If you step over the head and you get that Kimura, you got him dead to rights on that one. That's exactly what you saw. Uh, Glover Teixeira defeating Jared Cannonier, 30-26 across the board. This one seems fairly straightforward. Jared Cannonier has an, just enough jiu-jitsu to defend himself, but not enough jiu-jitsu to do a whole lot more than that. And that's a bad place against someone like a black belt, because what that essentially means is you're just maintaining their supremacy. You're not letting the bottom drop out, but you're just maintaining that gap between you and them. And that's a horrible place to be because you just don't ever feel like you can get out. And there were times where he had an underhook, and I thought he was going to be able to roll to his base from half guard, but he couldn't. He is decent at shrimping back to guard. Um, he's good about protecting himself underneath for the most part. Glover ultimately sort of wearing him down and passing to mount uh, and then, you know, different sort of uh, versions of half guard here and there. Cannonier um, did a good job to defend and ultimately survive, but... The differential between the two was just so great. And, you know, coming off of a knockout loss the way Glover did, uh, you can expect that he would want this kind of performance where, you know, a little bit safe. But this guy's got, you know, bills to pay and a career to maintain. So it's 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 partly understandable. Uh, I wish Cannonier had done a little bit more off of his – people were like, oh, his takedown defense was bad. Sure, I won't argue with that. But what also was sort of shocking to me was like, look, if you want to play guard with a guy, play guard. You know, do some submissions, do something. But if that's not working, stop playing guard and start finding ways to stand up. There were times he had underhooks where he could have gotten out, and he didn't. Uh, there was a time where, for example, Derek Brunson went for a takedown, and uh, Anderson Silva wizzered so hard that he spun both of the other guy around, and he was able to separate like a super hard outside wizard to force D Brunson down and away. Um, and uh, that's from an, you know, a wizard is an overhook of an underhook. And certainly that possibility could have been there for Glover, but I just mean if you could keep fighting for that underhook, a lot of different things can happen for you. And at a time here, he was more worried about the punches than he was different forms of guard play underneath to stand. If you've got, you know, if you've got, if you're on one, if you're on once, if you're on your left hip and you got your left hip, uh, leg hooking, you got your right leg over their le uh, left leg, and you've got an underhook on that same side, you better start standing up. You better start spread, walking your body out to the side, using the underhook, and then you can either reverse into them, or you can stand up altogether. I just didn't see a lot of that. Uh, let's see. Dustin Poirier defeating Jim Miller, 28-28, 30-27, 29-28. I mean, here's a perfect example of the scoring criteria. I mean, they all go for the same, well, two of them go for the same guy, but here's my point. One is a draw, one guy has Poirier winning all three, and one has a winning two of the three. You know, so consider that for what it's worth. Um, but point being is, um, great fight. 
Jim Miller taking his back in that first round, uh, but Dustin Poirier, you know, not panicking, getting uh, or yeah, getting out of it uh, essentially. Um, Headhunting Dustin Poirier, you know, um, a little too willing to accept punishment from Jim Miller, but Jim Miller with those calf kicks, man, that was amazing what he was able to do. Ultimately, it doesn't look like he broke. Dustin Poirier's leg, but did a really good job just making it very, very hard for him. A little bit too little, a little bit too late, but nevertheless, a, a great, great job from both guys. Two credentialed fighters, two uh, grizzled veterans. A nice way to open up the pay-per-view card. This is a word that, you know, a fight is a decision and no one really cares because it's so good, but you get the idea. Um, then we have Bilal Muhammad defeating Randy Brown. This is on the prelim card, 30-27 and then 29-28. Was striking with him at first, had a little bit of trouble with the distance, I think, and then just switched up to grappling and sort of overwhelmed him. Randy Brown is a good striker, but he never seems to be building towards anything. He just seems to be trying things in the moment, and if he can win that one exchange and then the next one and the next one, he's fine. He never just seems to be sort of creating an atmosphere where he can set up something devastating later. He was trying those... Um, you know, go low, go high on the same side, but, you know, it, it didn't ever work. Uh, Wilson Hayes defeating Olka Sasaki, 29-28. Made a little, little bit of a mistake in the last round. Had to give up his back, but, you know, Hayes is such a good grappler. Huberto uh, Godoy black belt that it doesn't really matter. But the problem is here, what does this win really do for him? He gets a win that he decisions against a guy who is basically overmatched. Doesn't give you confidence he can beat, uh, you know, Demetrius Johnson. Maybe he can, but it doesn't feel like a very inspiring performance. And he beat a guy with not a whole lot of name. I feel bad for Wilson Hayes, you know. He had a promise to him and the whole thing fell apart. But it's not like he's going out there and, like, you know, stamping his passport to Demetrius Johnson land. Islam Makachev absolutely just Nick Lentz's Nick Lentz. 30-25, 30-25, 30-27. That 27 scorecard belonged to Doug Crosby, a friend of Nick Lentz. There's a big problem. Um... What do you want to say about this one? Top control takedowns. Basically did whatever he wanted. Nick Lentz had no real answer for him. Rick Glenn defeating Felipe Nover. Split decision. Here's another perfect example. 30-27 for Nover. And then 229-28s for Rick Glenn. It's a weird scorecard, I understand. But given the scoring criteria, that's not an outrageous thing. And then Ryan LaFleur defeating Juan Carnero. Uh, competitive early, but eventually the takedowns, the pressure, and actually some of the outside sort of overhands from Ryan LaFleur giving him problems. Um, let's see, Fire of the Night went to Dustin Poirier and Jim Miller, performance went to Jacques Array, and that is that. So, without further ado, let's take a look at some of the slides from the first round of Brunson versus Silva to see if we can learn anything about what happened there. So here's what I want to show. I, we've already been over the whole scoring argument. For me, I don't see how you can score the first round for Silva, but in some ways I think I can. Here's why. I still see it for Brunson basically no matter what, but my point is this. Let's look at the slides from the way in which the fight was broadcast on the pay-per-view. And then let's take a look at the slides from the overhead camera. And what you'll see is some of the things, not some of the things, many of the things look differently. Now, some look better for Silva the second time around, but a lot of them look better for Brunson the second time around. And I think this only serves my argument, not so much about the scoring, I, I don't want to rehash it, but merely that... We don't have enough of a sophisticated system to properly assess what's happening in the cage. And just asking a bunch of judges, usually elderly ones, or I should say commonly elderly ones, to do it, to me, seems woefully insufficient, even if we give them monitors. 
Here's a perfect example. So let's go through this, right? In fact, this argument undercuts the whole part about having monitors. Having a monitor is valuable, yes. But if I can watch this fight this way and get a, 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 a maybe even a completely different perspective by watching it from an overhead cam, for example, you can see where some problems might arise. So one thing to note about this fight was it was dreadfully boring, at least the first full minute. Here they are early. And then... 424, Brunson attempted a leg kick and missed. Silva backs off. So, you know, first 40 seconds, there's nothing happening. All right, there's 525. You can see he tries to kick him here. Slides are a little bit out of order there. I apologize. Um, and he steps away. So now we're a minute later, or I should say a minute into the fight. We're at 355. This is where the first real strike lands. Derek Brunson goes through. Bang. And you can see, watch the knee buckle here of Anderson Silva. But, uh, like, you don't see it from the slides. But trust me, go back and see it at 355. He lands this one nice, and it actually, like, wobbles the knee of Silva, right? And then he sort of sticks his hands out and backs away. All right, we're about a minute and a half into the fight. He, Brunson takes a super wide step. I actually feel like he mistimed this because he feints in and Silva backs out. And he feints in and Silva backs out. And then Silva backs out the second time but doesn't come back into space. And yet he still steps on the third one. And you can see he's nowhere close on this. And Silva throws this check. And I want to make a point about this. During the fight when I watched it, I thought this landed. Right? This counter check right hook. It looks like it does. So keep that in mind. We go a little later and he tries to, I think this is in the same sequence. Uh, no, a little bit later, he tries for a right hook. Silva steps back, it whiffs. Right? You can see that. And then he tries for another counter. And this one I also thought landed. In fact, this one made a super loud noise. Like, if you go back and you watch the broadcast at 322, you can hear a big pop on the gloves. And I thought, wow, okay, he cracked him here. That's a decent shot, right? And you can see where his hips are facing, too. Like, he, he got all into it. So we keep going. And, and it also looks like it sort of wobbled him a little bit. The body language. Derek Brunson has a bit of that King Mo body language where even if something doesn't land, they look a little wobbled. And as a consequence, I think it might tell the judges something. Right? We keep going. He lands a nice inside leg kick here. Derek Brunson does. All right? A little bit later. They're facing off. Silva raises a knee. He's going to try and close the distance straight in on him here. All right? You can see Brunson wants to get away. Puts a hand up, trying to sort of protect himself. This shot, you can see, is blocked. The blue is the glove here of Brunson. It is blocked. That shot does not get through. He tries another one. Wait till this renders. And... It, hard to tell if it lands from this angle. It might have, but Brunson's sort of getting away, right? There's another one. Trying to back up. Brunson's on the move. Silva tries to land this right. Doesn't come through. It gets blocked. So, you know, it's not clear exactly what's landed here. It looks bad that Brunson is running away. But if this, this is how it works. Effective striking and effective grappling are the most important. In other words, if one fighter has more effective striking than the other... It doesn't matter if he was backing out. That criteria doesn't come into play unless you consider the striking and the grappling to be even. Then you go to some of the other methods of judging, aggression, control. You get the idea. And so Brunson backs out. So maybe Sil Silva snuck one through there? Hard to tell. All right, we go a little bit later. 254. Silva sort of trying to march into him. Brunson, I think, goes for a shot here. Silva blocks it. You might be like, oh, Silva... Defended his takedowns. He did. Defense is not scored. 
Defense is its own reward. It is not scored. We keep going. He pushes Silva, I think, into the fence here as this renders. Yep. You can see he's got him pressed up here. All right. Doesn't get much out of it. They back away. Both fighters kind of exchange here. It's hard to tell what lands, but I believe Silva's lands a little bit better. Just keep that in mind. But what... Oh, excuse me. No, I, I went back and I watched this. It actually doesn't land. It skims. Let's go back a second here. He throws. He ducks. It skims out. Like, it, it doesn't land partially in bounce. It, like, merely glances, if that. But he gets pushed down here, and that causes a little bit of a wobble. And so he backs out. Again, he's got a little bit of a weird body language. All right? He comes back in again. He wants to re-engage. He lands a nice overhand right. That one cracks him clean. Good shot by Derek Brunson. All right? Tries to follow with another right. Actually, he hit a left. Let's go back. He has a left here. That cracks him. Tries to go with a right. I believe this one misses. Silva gets out of the way of it. And then they sort of pressure back up. Brunson closes the distance. Wobbles again because he gets pushed again. It's not because he got hit with anything. There's no punch thrown. This arm merely off-balances him. And you can see he's kind of off-balance already. So he has to like catch himself. And he uses this arm to catch himself on the hip. But there's no punch thrown here. And he backs out. So you can see we're like well into three minutes past the fight. There's not a lot happening. Brunson, I believe, lands this left nice and clean. Yes, he does. Boom. Cracks him. Right? So he's landing big shots, too, coming through. And he, this is a nicely timed takedown. This might have been the best sequence that Brunson had. Comes over the top of the left. Boom. Cracks him. Right? You can see the face. And then tries to go for a takedown and gets underneath the underhooks. But Silva, you'll see, moves in the right direction around the takedown on the strong side to shove him away with this sort of cross face. It's a good job by Anderson Silva. He really has improved his takedown defense. Right? Uh, and they get back to the top. They sort of are still clinched up here. Right? They're, now they're upright. Brunson comes in over the top, tries to land a left here. See that here. Tries to land another shot. Maybe an elbow here. Doesn't. I don't know how much he gets through. Right? And now they're... Just kind of at a wash in this position. Silva comes over the top of the left. Brunson gets out of the way. Brunson gets his hands in the middle. And you can see Silva wants to come around for a clinch. Brunson cocks back a left. Let's go one more here. Boom. Catches him. Right? I think it's the same one. Screen will render. Here you see him coming up with the right uppercut. Boom. Cracks him. All right, comes over with the left here. Boom, cracks him. Boom, cracks him over the top of the right, although this one I don't think landed that clean. Comes over with the left, another one that doesn't land all that clean. Misses with the right again. Silva tries to throw a knee, but he gets just the outside of the arm of Brunson. All right, they try to re-engage in the clinch. Sorry for my screen having to render like that. Uh... Brunson cocks back a left, it looks like. Misses. We keep going. This is one of the bigger flurries of the uh, of the round. They clinch here. Nice knee from Anderson Silva. He had two big strikes in this round. This is one of them. Hard shot to the body. Um, good shot by him. They back out on the clinch. And now they're away. This was a punch. This wasn't really like a hard punch. He was more like 
just you know probing out there. He didn't throw a shot or anything, and even if he did, it missed. So that that's not a real thing. Brunson tries to throw one. Looks like it doesn't land clean. All right here comes the next shot. Let's see what happens. They're in close proximity here. He's trying to step in and across to create a lane for this left. It looks like, and Silva turns his body. Look, he's gonna get, he's gonna sort of rotate out like that, and he tries to land his own. Neither lands, so this is a wash here. All right, I believe somebody's might be out of order here, player. Yep. All right, so then we move on to 115. Brunson throws a kick, doesn't get anywhere close. All right, tries to throw a shot, both do it at the same time, doesn't land for either. Both of them here, sort of, this is the same thing, they're just sort of range finding here. Throws a kick, it lands. Okay, they're set up, we're now less than a minute to go. Let's see what happens. Brunson throws, doesn't hit anything, just sort of swings at air. But, did it on purpose, because he lands a nice, hard outside leg kick here. Alright? And that, you can see, it pushes Silva back, it lands so hard. Alright? Does a sort of a fake Superman punch at 45 seconds in, doesn't land. Silva follows him close to the fence. Tries to land a shot here. This might have landed, it's hard to tell in real time. Alright? Tries to land a right, it misses, or just comes up short anyway. And you can see... As soon as this renders, which I apologize for again, you can see he's still short. Brunson's getting away. You're looking at this picture. You're thinking, man, Brunson's on the run. This counts against him. No. This only counts against him to the extent you think the striking is absolutely equal. That's it. And I have a hard time seeing how you can think that. All right? He gets away. Plus, he turns around and then faces him later. Here we go. 39 seconds to go. We're almost done here for this round, for this version of the round anyway. All right? Shoots in. Anderson Silva, look how his hands are ready to rock. He's in good position. Boom. Catches him. Double underhooks. You got nothing for him, Derek Brunson. Comes up. He's trying to, th you know, throw a punch, trying to get control on the inside. All right? Can't really get it. This is the other. I mentioned the two shots that Silva lands that were nice. This is the second one. He had one knee up the gut, and then this one. That landed hard. Those are the two best shots for him by far. All right? Here we have just 30 seconds left. Silva's cornering him. Throws this spinning back kick. Maybe it landed a little bit. Hard to tell from this angle, right? Certainly kind of cool. Steps in with a right. It doesn't land, right? And now they clinch. And let's see what happens with Brunson with the time remaining. Brunson's here getting clinched up, but Silva hasn't thrown anything just yet. Left comes underneath, but it's a little bit blocked by that elbow of Silva. All right? Goes to the body. Digs a right right there, right? Comes underneath. Another one, but it's hard to tell exactly how much that's landing. Digs an elbow over the top. That one actually lands. Boom, that uppercut actually lands too, because now there's a little bit of space between them. And then another one that lands. And that one twists his head sideways. You can see it there. Another one moves his head to the other side. These are right in succession. Throws another shot over the top and misses. Throws another one underneath, catches him a little bit. All right? Throws one over the top. That misses. And then they clinch some more. They clinch some more. You can see Brunson throwing a shot to the body. Oh, excuse me. No. Right there. On the chin. Look at it. Cracks his jaw sideways. All right. Throws another one and misses up the gut here. And then they, I think Silva tries to land a left, but this one's partially blocked. And then he throws this weird knee, and it doesn't really land. It misses. He catches him. You'll see. 
and then they go down to the ground. Okay, let's take a look at it from a different angle and see what we learned there. I don't have as many slides for this one, but I just want to, want to show what landed from the overhead cam direction, and this will go in order as well. All right, here's that first outside leg kick that you can see. Remember I mentioned it buckled his knee? You can see it actually buckled his knee. Now, the only problem with the overhead cam is it doesn't give you a time marker, but we'll have to just go through this as best we can. You can see he reaches here. Remember those counter hooks that we thought landed on the broadcast? Look at him here. This is not him popping his head back. This is him whiffing. If you don't believe me, I encourage you to go back and watch on the broadcast itself. He is whiffing here. It does not actually land. Let's go for another one. He dives in with a right. Oh, here comes that counter right hook, right? Nope, that misses as well. Hand comes up and blocks it. That The noise you heard was him hitting the parrying glove of Derek Brunson. So those first two check hooks that I thought landed the first time, they don't actually land. Here we are. Brunson throws an inside kick that kind of lands, worth noting. Throws a jab, misses, Silva gets out of the way. All right, here we are. Pawing, range finding here. Throws a nice inside cut kick. All right, fair enough. Silver responds with his own, but doesn't really reach him. Misses a little bit. Here we are, him positioning himself, or uh, I should say pressuring Brunson against the fence. He lands one of the rights on the evasion. So that one sneaks through. I couldn't tell the first time. That confirms that it sneaks through. All right? Good shot by Anderson Silva. But the left, we could see from the first angle, misses. This one slides by. Brunson gets his head just out of the way. All right? And then you can see he eventually gets away. Here's Brunson coming in on a shot. Silva's already got that underhook ready to rock. All right, but nevertheless, Brunson pushes him back against the fence. Here they are against the fence. Now, he lands a couple of shots to the body. He lands one over the top that turns the head of Silva. I didn't see it the first time, but okay, I saw it this time. Not saying it's the biggest impact in the world, but it counts. All right, and then there's another one. And as soon as this renders, you can see the same kind of shot. All right. Now they're sort of wrestling in the clinch here. There's not a whole lot going on. Fighting for head position. Silva's just a little hesitant to throw anything. I think he didn't want to get taken down at range, but what are you going to do? All right. Throws a shot over the left, top of the head, and misses here by Derek Brunson. And now they're back at range. This jab, it looks like it lands, but it mostly misses. It, la it lands a little bit from Anderson Silva. A little bit. All right. Here comes one Derek Brunson over the top. He doesn't quite get it because there's a hand blocking the left there of Brunson. But that right catches him, bink, off the top of the head. That's what you're seeing right there. And again, I encourage you to go back and watch if you don't believe me. All right, and then he gets inside and tries to sort of dominate him in the space. Here they are in the middle of the octagon. All right, Brunson comes out with a left, tries to get an underhook, and uh, off, a, off a takedown rather, and then you can see he's got the wizard, and then he's got this sort of elbow to position him out. All right, but Brunson comes over the top and catches him with the left here. All right, and they sort of keep wrestling in this space. Head down. That's a oh, excuse me. This is the one knee he lands. Boom. Sort of like folded his lumbar region when he did it. That was a good shot from Anderson Silva. Now they're up against the fence, and this is where Brunson, at like the 140-ish mark, just starts bombing on him unobstructed. Boom. Look at that right hand. Turns his head. Boom, here comes, oh, excuse me, that was the left hand. Now it's a right hand, turns his head. Silva tries to throw the knee, but you can see it doesn't really reach. That left arm was in between. And now they're still wrestling in the clinch. All right, Brunson throws the right, 
hard to tell if it lands. Probably not. And neither does it, this lands for neither guy. This is a wash right here. Okay, we keep going. See how this looks here. Brunson throws this kick that lands on nobody. Right? Silva tries to counter, but you can see Brunson's got the hand up. Hard to tell exactly if that lands. Another kick. This one is, I caught the picture at the end of it, but this one lands. This is the inside cut kick here. Uh, and then he lands that hard outside on the one. He had landed two hard leg kicks. This one, and then the very first strike in the round. He landed other leg kicks, but those two are the really hard ones. All right? And you can see that one moves Silva away. It's so hard. Now he does the fake Superman thing. We're getting close to the end here. Silva tries to catch him. Look how close he is. Not close at all. Doesn't come close. That one, you can see, is just short. It's not there. All right? And then he chases him, and he's nowhere close. You can see him trying to grab and pull. You can say Derek's running away. That only counts if the striking is even, which it's not. All right? Then he shoots in. Anderson Silva doing a good job. What's the power side? He's going to move through. And, well, you don't see in that particular slide. This is the other good shot. That one up the gut. Great shot from Anderson Silva. This one lands hard. Right? He throws the spinning back kick. It's completely blocked. Look at that. Not saying it doesn't hurt to take, but that's not something you can call super effective striking. Can't ignore it, but look, it is absolutely 100% blocked. Okay? Then you see this sort of moment here. Silva starts to throw a punch. Uh, Bronson sort of steps in and jams him. They clinch up. And now they're just sort of jockeying here in space. And you can see these are all the shots that... These uppercuts that Brunson throws towards the end of the round. Left hook over the top there from Brunson. And then a right hook, right? And you can see him just battering Silva as Silva holds on to him. Hitting him with the rights. And a sort of a left here that doesn't quite score. And then another right. And then the right that does score, you can see it turns his head. Alright? Throws a top, uh, left over the top. And they're still in space. Silva's thrown nothing this entire time in the space, by the way. All right, then they're jockeying in the inside space. Brunson sort of separating here. As Silva tries to push through. Left hook partially lands there for Silva. It's a decent one. Then he throws that thing at the end, and then they, he gets taken down. Right, So you know how this goes. So what can you learn from that? Several of the shots that looked that they were very impactful from Silva the first time, and the first way it was broadcast, clearly don't land on the overhead cam. Also, Silva basically gave this round away. Here is the striking total differential for this fight. Now look, we can make a different argument about the second and third rounds, but the first round, they, fight metric credited Silva with 8 of 20, Brunson with 20 of 36. Um, in the first round, he got 43 of 60, Silva had 9 of 21 total strikes. So 8 of them significant, 1 of them insignificant. 2 failed takedown attempts, but defense is its own reward. So you don't award Silva points for not getting, the, or I should say for uh, stuffing those. You give uh, nothing. He, he, the, the benefit of stuffing the takedowns is that you don't have to be taken down. Um, that's how the scoring criteria works. So to me, we can have a separate debate about the second and third round, which are very, very close, you can see. A lot of different sort of factors to consider here. Um, but nevertheless, that first round... It looks to me pretty clear, and yet a lot of fans believe Silva won that first round, and given the way in which the fight can look differently depending on your position and your preferences, your spatial positioning, you can get a lot of different weird outcomes. 
And last but certainly not least, let's take a look at what's coming up in the week ahead. Two events this weekend. Number one, Bellator 172, and then you also have UFC Halifax. So, Bellator 172, this will be at the SAP Center in San Jose, California. This airs on Friday night. Uh, in the main event, Fedor Emelianenko returns to face Matt Mitrione. Josh Thompson versus Patricky Freire. Czech Congo versus Oli Thompson. Uh, Veda Arteaja versus Brooke Mayo. Not sure how to pronounce those names. And then Josh Koscheck versus Mauricio Alonso. Uh, I don't think there's anything else of note on the prelim card there. Um, then you have on Saturday night, UFC Fight Night 105. This will be at the Scotiabank Center in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Derek Lewis takes on Travis Brown. That should be fun. This is under the radar, bro. Johnny Hendricks taking on Hector Lombard. Sam Cecilia, uh, it'll be a middleweight. Sam Cecilia taking on Gavin Tucker. Elias Theodoru versus Cesar Fajeda. Sarah McMahon taking on Gina Mazzani. Remember, she was supposed to face Liz Carmouche. Liz fell out. Nordine Talib taking on Santiago Ponzinibbio. Carla Esparza returns to action against Random Marcos. Uh, Eamon Zahabi, the brother of Faraz, takes on Heginaldo Vieira. Jack Marshman versus Tiago Santos. Alessandro Ricci versus Paul Felder, the Irish Dragon. And then Gerald Mearshart taking on Ryan Janes, or Janice, however you pronounce it properly. Okay, so that's it. If you have any questions or comments, email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. Follow me on Twitter at uh, sbnlukethomas. Give the video a thumbs up, share it around. I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for watching, and until next time, enjoy the fights.